You are listening to Prevention is the New Cure, all things health and NHS with a political twist. And that's with me, Dr Helen Stokes-Lampard, and with Steve Bryan, MP. Hi, Helen. Hi, Steve. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? Fine, yes. Welcome to episode 23. We've got a very special guest joining us. Uh, some may say political royalty, but more of that in just a moment. Um, so we're back on Zoom today, so I can see you um, and hear you loud and clear. Last time we were together in Portcullis House, we did our special focus on dentistry and oral health. And we had Sarah Hurley on, who, for those who don't know, used to be the chief dental officer. That episode's still available on our podcast platform. And uh, we've had a lot of feedback from it. We had a good discussion, didn't we? It was excellent. We covered so much ground with her. We really did romp through a lot of stuff, contracts, recruitment, retention. And actually, I caught a little bit of uh, PMQs earlier today because we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon. Um, and I heard that the Prime Minister's committed to a dental development plan. Do you think he got to listen to the podcast last week? I think he might have. Um, well, of course, they've been saying for a long time that the dental recovery plan is coming shortly well they mm -hmm. said soon and then they said shortly and i can tell you as a minister that means that it hasn't yet been signed off by treasury uh right. when you when you're told to say shortly <laughs> because it covers a multitude of sins i remember once uh, i was bringing out the child obesity plan i said in the chamber that it would come out um it would come out by the summer uh to which some wag shouted which summer and uh <laughs> you know I, I didn't really have an answer to that but but the fact is is that yeah the dental recovery plan has got quite a lot in it and it was written by the former dental minister and the former secretary of state and it's been tweaked by this one and it is shortly but I happen to know my little birdies tell me that it is very imminent so soon has gone to shortly has gone to imminent so Excellent. by the time this podcast comes out on thursday morning the first of february um and it won't be pinch punch first of the month um it, it will be possibly with us but if not it's very very soon i do love the hierarchy of, of waiting you know the hierarchy of anticipation i know i know i know only in whitehall helen <laughs> hey steve last time as we were signing off you were heading off into a big birthday celebration now i won't remind anybody who doesn't know just how many decades you were celebrating <laughs> how big it is was how how was it all and did you like my card i loved your card thank you very much for that yeah it was um well i was born in the 70s and it had a zero on the end so do them <laughs> do the math as they say the other you side don't of the pond. Need Mensa for that do you know what? The, the the guys who help us with the podcast, the, the production team, were just asking how was, I haven't seen them since the weekend, how was birthday? And I, if you have to be, have that big birthday, uh, then it was the most perfect way to have it, if I'm honest. Uh, you know, really nice. We spent the weekend by the sea in Hailing Island, uh, which oh, where yes. I've never been before. We spent the weekend by the sea in a beautiful townhouse, um, which reminded me of an episode of Grandpa in My Pocket so people who watch CBBS will know what I mean by that. Okay. And it was a three-story townhouse with the bedroom up the top. And uh, and I woke up on my birthday with a view of the sea and the sunshine. And we had various friends and family in that we entertained throughout the weekend. And yeah. And Monty? And Monty? And Monty was there, of course. So, so our, our great friends, Lee and Lindsay, bought their yellow lab, Molly, who is two. Monty is a black lab, who is four. Um, he thought that it was his birthday and Christmas uh, rolled into one. And, uh, yeah, he, bless him, he didn't know how to cope with it, Helen. He kept um, sniffing her, as they do. But he also, uh, it, it was bizarre. He basically followed her around the house and kept nudging her. Like with his nose, like nudging her back, or yeah. like, like almost almost knocking her over. It was like, 
as I said to Monty, you know, you've got a long way to go, boy, in learning how to woo the opposite sex. Um, but eventually she told him off and then they both knocked over a can of beer. Excellent. Good. Uh, good and then we went for a lovely walk on the beach and Monty uh, went chasing into the, into the sea to, to catch Molly and they both got hit by a massive wave and knocked over. But they're so both OK. They were both fine. So they had a wonderful time. But thank Excellent. you for asking. Yeah, it was a great birthday. Marvellous. Oh, Steve, I'm so glad to hear that. Um, last time we were recording this in your office in Westminster, but you've been on your travels this week. What have you been up to? Yeah, I have actually, because I, although I chair the health committee and, you know, that's my my great passion. One of my other great passions, which I don't think we ever talked about, is culture, media and sport and music stuff. And um, so I'm, I'm about music, music a lot. Actually. Yeah, we do. Yeah, no, I'm still on the culture, media and sports select committee as just a regular member. And we've been in Manchester for a couple of days. So one of the things we did was visit British Cycling at the, the velodrome and the HQ of British Cycling, which is there, and saw some of the secrets as they get ready for the Olympic Games this summer, which was incredible. Oh, and, and they were and they were talking about, you know, so later on this week, actually on Friday, there's a big, big announcement from British Cycling. So they they do the elite cycling, but they also do, you know, the your, your low-level cycling stuff, which is part of the health and well-being, walking, cycling strategy. Ah. And that's going to be, you know, people who are interested in cycling will be interested in what they're going to come out with later this week and you know i was just struck by obviously the, the elite cyclists we watched them go around the velodrome oh boy helen you should see the size of their legs um and the paralympians I'd like to have seen that. but they were saying how you know on the monday after that super yeah. saturday at london 2012 and we won amazing. all those medals apparently yeah. there was well you really apparently there was a real boost that 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 week in gdp because really? people felt good and you know what absences that monday after super saturday were the lowest that they had been in years because everyone wanted to be in work to talk about what they'd seen on that saturday wow and there was that an actual awesome. spike in gdp so isn't that incredible that is amazing I, I just i mean that was just the most remarkable time the olympics in london and really special and um you talk about cycling i, I live just outside birmingham and um the road I live on is actually part of the heart of England cycleway. And so we have a huge number of cyclists going going past. And um and it's a sort of country lane. And you see all sorts. I think that's what's really amazing is you see people who are clearly committed, you know, got all the gear and actually do have a lot of idea how to use it and zoom along. But then you see a lot of people who are what I call much more casual cyclists. And that's great to see. It's had a huge resurgence. Yeah. So that was cool. And then we did some stuff with so grassroots music is very much where I grew up, uh, you know, in music in the back of a pub, uh, yeah. you know, those not the big venues, the grassroots music venues, which is where bands learn their trade. You know, I Maybe. suppose the, cav the cavern in Liverpool would be a grassroots music venue. And, um, you know, it's where people learn how to be a band. And they're so, so important. And there's about 850 of them left in, wow. in the country. And we lost a lot of, during COVID. And we've lost a lot over the years because it's really, really hard. It's really hard, the economics of running one of those venues. Yeah. So we had a big round table with them. And one of the things they were talking about is, you know, live music and that buzz that you get from going to an event like that and how that could be connected to social prescribing. And I thought, well, I know somebody who knows a thing or two about that. Yeah. What do you think? You're talking my language, Steve. Yeah, I'd love to talk longer about the huge, the huge benefits of music on well-being. So there's there's the social bit about being in a place like that where it's live music and interacting with and interacting with others, and there's a sort of a, a collective sense of well-being. There's also all the good we know that um, even playing a musical instrument can be great for your health. I mean, 
uh, we got some awesome research about people with dementia and the benefit of either singing or playing a musical instrument. People who've played instruments before, um, there's benefits on to reducing a progression of dementia. There's benefits on people's well-being when they have even advanced dementia. And one of my heartwarming stories as a GP was seeing a, a delightful patient of mine who had developed quite an aggressive dementia and um, had recently moved into a nursing home and he was just sitting sort of slumped in the corner. And I mentioned to one of the carers that he was a brilliant pianist. In fact, he had been his job had been a pianist and teaching music. And um, they said, oh, we've got an old piano in, in the other room. It's sort of tucked in a corner. And so they led him and showed him to the piano. Honestly, Steve, he just lit up. He he became a new person. And those those months that he spent there in that care home, he entertained all the other residents. Honestly, it was just so heartwarming and a really powerful lesson for me as a GP. It was almost a throwaway comment by me, but I've never forgotten it. That's incredible. Yeah. So anyway, so to conclude on that, we went to a gig um, on Tuesday evening at a venue, very famous venue, managed called Band on the Wall, and saw a band called Jazz Sabbath, and uh, it, it's a jazz trio. Jazz trio. Do you remember Jazz Hands? Jazz. I do. I certainly do. I'm just going to leave it there. Okay. Anybody's interested, Google Jazz Sabbath. Um, just before we introduce our guest. We, um, we've got three royal health stories kicking around at the moment. Now, obviously, um, you know, Kate has been in hospital, just come out this week. And, you know, we rightly don't know what, what that's yeah. about, abdominal Special surgery. Privacy. And, you know, we just leave that there. Um, Sarah Ferguson has got yeah. this apparently awful, aggressive skin cancer diagnosis. And the that. king has been in for an enlarged prostate procedure. Yeah. Um, how important is it, do we think, for people like that to talk about their health challenges? Well, I think there's, there's two sides of looking at this. If you look, think about Kate, who, so, you know, we know that a very prominent member of the royal family has had major surgery and she's chosen to uh, keep quiet about the causes of it and her recovery. And, you know, as a doctor, I 100% respect somebody's co right to confidentiality and privacy. It is totally her business. But when somebody in a very prominent public position, not necessarily royalty, but anyone in the public spotlight, shares a significant health story, it has profound impact on the health service and the well-being of others if it's done well and constructively as is being done with the king for example um we see a positive spike in the number of people seeking information about prostate disease about men's waterworks problems and that looks to be a very constructive thing um, and so we know you know like all cancers uh you know if they caught early can be treated and the, but actually the vast majority of um, neurological symptoms in men are benign disease and there are treatments that can help, whether that's medication or, in the King's case, uh, relatively minor routine surgery. The melanoma one is a totally different kettle of fish and I, it's good for the public to be aware, again, reminded of these aggressive cancers. You know, skin cancers fall into three main categories, a sort of a very a minor type that tend to only grow locally and that need, need local treatment still need to be sorted because they'll continue to grow. An intermediate type, a squamous cell type that can be really quite destructive. Um, but then melanoma, which can be potentially very aggressive and serious. And um, it sounds like in, in Sarah Ferguson's case that it was caught um, incidentally. Um, and so we all wish her the very, very best. And so I'm sure we'll see a spike in coming weeks of people. Looking. And just finally, with the king and mm. the and the prostate mm. uh, procedure for an enlarged prostate. Now, just just be absolutely crystal clear. As we said at the select committee when we had Prostate Cancer UK in recently, this of course does not mean that His Royal Highness has got prostate cancer. Absolutely. But but it means that he's got an enlarged prostate. So yes. what what would that? How would 
that have presented and what would he have had in that procedure? Well, everything that we've heard so far is that the king has his benign, that's non-cancerous prostate disease. Uh, but interestingly, prostate cancer and benign disease present in very similar ways. And that is with outflow problems. That is where the passage of urine from the body is obstructed by this prostate growing and, and pressing on, on the root out, which means that men often notice they need to get up to go to the toilet in the night more. They notice that their stream isn't as powerful as it used to be. Um, they notice that it takes them longer to empty their bladder, that it, urine dribbles quite a lot at the end. Um, you know, in, in some cases, they notice blood in their urine, they notice sexual problems and so on. But the common ones that, that usually bring men through the door, the consulting room first, are a change in their urinary stream, the change in their pattern and frequency of passing urine. Yeah. Okay. Well, we wish them all three of them all the best, of course. Uh, let's take a break and then we'll introduce our guest. Welcome back. Okay. Uh, a few months ago, we had Chances Jacker on, and today we are absolutely delighted to have the new, we still call it new, I think, the new Secretary of State so. for Health and Social Care, who is my dear colleague, Victoria Atkins MP. She was appointed Secretary of State back in November believe it or not. My goodness, how time flies. Previously worked at the Treasury, obviously been at the Home Office, uh, been an MP since 2015, very valued colleague, good friend, uh, really pleased to have you. Welcome to the podcast, Victoria. Well, Steve, thank you. I'm, I'm blushing uh, from that description, but thank you. It's a real pleasure to be joining you both because uh, I know how much it is enjoyed by uh, people who are interested in health and prevention, uh, uh, as well as clinicians and lots of other people. So delighted to be with you. Well, let me add my welcome to uh, Secretary of State. Really great to meet you. And um, I hope you have some fun. We've got loads of questions lined up. People have, it's bizarre how, how many people are interested to pitch questions to the Secretary of State when it comes to, we, we have rationed them to focusing the questions on matters related to disease prevention. There were a whole wide range of things that they came up with. So um, should we get started, Steve? Yeah, so there's loads of things going on. Uh, your department is, is hyperactive at the moment. And um, as we record this today, Pharmacy First has has been launched, been super powered. And so I thought we might start with that because that's going to be a real interesting move the dial on primary care, we hope. What's it all about? Is it as big a deal as we all hope it's going to be? This is an enormous uh, change in not just our mindset as members of the public accessing healthcare in England, but also uh, I think for the uh, medical profession. You know, we we know that pharmacists are highly trained, highly qualified people, uh, and we believe that by uh, encouraging people with the seven most uh, basic or common conditions, if we can encourage people to go to their pharmacy first then um, pharmacists will be able to look after them safely. Of course, if pharmacists think uh, that uh, um, GPs or indeed urgent uh, attention is needed, of course they will make those urgent uh, uh, inquiries. Sorry, that's my email going off. Um, but um, it's a really, really safe system. And what's so pleasing is that today, 31st of January, uh, we've had more than 95% of pharmacists sign up to this. And I can give you a bit of an exclusive here on the uh, podcast that uh, Boots told me that they had their first customer through the doors using Pharmacy First at 8.31 this morning. So um, I believe this could be huge. Yeah. It wasn't me. I just want to <laughs> make that clear. It wasn't me. But there, So there are seven 
conditions, right, yes. that we're extending their work to. And what what are those seven conditions and what is the, the new powers, if you like, that they've got in prescribing and ability to then obviously get it into the patient notes from a patient safety point of view? That's and for oh, Helen's GP gang. That's yeah. critical, isn't it? Absolutely critical. So the conditions are earache, uh, sinusitis, sore throat, impetigo, uh, an infected insect bite, shingles and uh, uh, uncomplicated urinary tract infections in women. It's really careful. Uh, It's really important that we're careful with that last one because it as Helen knows far better than me, it can be um, more complicated in men. But if it's an uncomplicated UTI in women, then they can go to the pharmacist. And uh, without wishing to blow my own trumpet, I've just remembered all of those. So I'm very proud. I'm quite impressed, actually. You rattled that off really well. Um, and, and, yeah, and I was actually quite relieved with the uh, urinary tract infection to see that distinction, whereas the others are much more generic, you know, anyone with earache. Um, but it's also adult women as well. It's including children, too. And I think that that's important, too. Um, from a GP point of view, Steve's already alluded to the issues about getting the documentation directly into the uh, the primary care healthcare record. I think that's a great hurdle if we've got over that. Actually, as a jobbing GP we've had quite a lot of pilots of this sort of thing in our area over the last few years and the pilots are great um, and the patients respond to it very well because at the end of the day patients want convenience and most of them love our local pharmacies and and it's a great collaboration I think I do wonder if we're being a bit ambitious as to the amount of work it'll save in general practice but quite frankly at the moment from my point of view every little helps to coin (laughs) a supermarket phrase well, we, we, the modelling I've been shown by officials working with NHSE is that they think this could free up to 10 million GP appointments, which would be a huge bonus for uh, GPs and practices, but also, of course, uh, for people who need treatment. And, and we shouldn't forget as well that this is in addition to the two services that launched uh, in December, namely blood pressure checks and uh, women being able to obtain oral contraception. So those two systems, those two services have been uh, running since December and now we're able to launch this uh, further package of help uh, through pharmacies. And on the tech point, you're absolutely right, Helen, we've again very much listened both to pharmacists and to clinicians on this uh, and uh, the sharing of um, data has been a critical part of our delivery plan and we believe with with one or two exceptions which is good they're going to be um overcome we hope in weeks to come but the overwhelming majority of pharmacists will be able to share that data very easily with their um gp colleagues Fantastic. on the prevention point then which is obviously what we're mostly interested in i remember when i was doing the public health job and the pharmacy job we did the trials on hypertension so high blood pressure in the northeast of england and that sort of what became became pharmacy first and you've expanded it out brilliantly um and you know this prime minister what credit he deserves right he grew up above the pharmacy and he he wanted this didn't he he wanted this so much and uh, i have a funny feeling although you wouldn't tell us when he appointed you i bet he said i want pharmacy first <laughs> to happen um but so i mean what do we reckon on on prevention of ill health how important it's going to be to pick up all these potential people with high blood pressure and all the illness that that can lead to uh, it's going to be a huge bonus and and you know my my um my my vision for our nhs and social care system is to reform um the system to make it faster simpler and fairer and i have to say pharmacy first ticks every single one of those um points but it's also importantly about ensuring that people are seen as quickly as possible so that if 
you know, God forbid there is a an underlying condition or something that needs um, uh, more investigation and uh, more treatment, then you know we're getting them through that much that process much more quickly. And also, you know, this is on top of uh, the great work that's being done across England now in community diagnostic centres. We, yeah. we we are running ahead of schedule. We've got 100, I think 141, possibly 142, 141 CDCs opening up. And again, I hope both patients and clinicians see the difference that those CDCs make in terms of diagnosing you know, very often very serious conditions, but doing that more quickly so that patients can get the treatment they need more promptly. I'm going to move us on now, because much as I'd love to keep talking about this topic, which is close to my heart, I'm going to move us on to another topic that Steve and I've talked a lot about on the podcast, which is about smoking, about vaping, the place of vaping in society, and the big announcement this week about getting rid of disposable vapes. What's been the reaction to that? Because mostly I'm, I'm hearing positive, but there are a few caveats. Mm. Well, this actually this has been an incredible week in in uh, terms of healthcare because uh, we have we, we've had the announcement on pharmacy first. We've also had the announcement on the NHS app, which we may be I don't know whether we'll get time. I hope we do to talk about that. But also um, tobacco and vaping. So the, the prime minister set out his ambition to create the first smoke free generation. Uh, by 2027 we had the consultation um just you know, over the christmas period and we've just uh, today oh sorry this week uh, launched our response to that consultation and what we will see is that uh, every young person aged 15 and younger today will now no longer be able ever to buy cigarettes legally in a shop that is a huge intervention i mean probably the biggest public health inf- intervention we can think of because as Helen and, and other clinicians know, um, it is the uh, single largest entirely preventable um, uh, cause of you know, disability, ill health, and dare we say it, death. And so this is a huge step forward. And, and I know that there will be colleagues or people that are worried about civil liberties and things like that. But actually, if we look back over history, if we look at you know the decision that was made to ban smoking in public places or to ban smoking of adult by adults in a car with children you know I don't think we would uh, you know go back on those decisions today so I think this is a huge step forward and it really shows an ambitious plan for our health in the future but also of course it, it means um, it will have a huge impact for the NHS so just whilst we've been on these last few minutes we know that every single minute well pretty much every single minute of every day someone in in England is admitted to hospital with a smoking related condition and so when you hear statistics like that you know it causes one in four um cancer deaths horrendous statistics like that that in fact mean you know when you're translating that to your loved one to your partner your mum your dad your brother your sister whoever it is that has a in- huge impact on people's lives and so uh we we genuinely think this is going to be a huge public health initiative but importantly yeah. As well as part of that, the vaping, I think. I know Helen asked me about vaping. Forgive me. I'm just such a, I'm so passionate about this. But the vaping is also a really important part of that because we fully acknowledge that vaping can be really important for adults who are wanting to quit. For some, it is, you know, the way that they make that transition. Um, But we should never, you know, people should not be vaping unless it is because they want to quit smoking. So children and young people should not be vaping. There's no question about that. So can I just unburden or worry? You know how I worry. 
Can I just unburden? <laughs> I, I am a warrior, Victoria. I can't, okay. I, you know. Um, but one of my worries is that, you know, there is some evidence that the numbers stopping smoking are continuing to go down, but that's that's slowed. Partly because we don't talk enough about the danger of smoking because we've sort of flipped to talking a lot about the problems with vaping. And there's also a lot of evidence. I mean, Ash, you know, the Action on Smoking Health will say that adults coming off cigarettes like the disposable vapes because they're cheap. They actually like flavors because they find the non-flavors boring. And I just I just wondered what, what safeguard is there in there to make sure that adults who need that and who talk to GPs like Helen about using that to get off the, the ciggies have still got that option in the toolbox? Well, as part of this overall package, we have also announced uh, a doubling of the funding for smoking cessation services. So we're taking it up to £138 million. Uh, It's great news. And that includes uh, the swap to stop scheme, which uh, I have checked, don't worry, it doesn't use disposable vapes, it uses reusable vapes in line with our overall policy intention. But so so we, we want to encourage adults to use vapes in order to quit if that is the right approach for them. And Helen will know, as, as I say, far better than me that there will be different different approaches for different people. But uh, we are also going to be running some pretty, you know, pretty strong uh, comms this year, public campaigns to help people um, feel supported as part of their uh, efforts to stop smoking. Because look, nicotine is amongst the most addictive substances that we can think of. And, And when I talk to friends and others who started smoking, you know, as a young person, Every you know, I've never met a smoker yet who doesn't wish they hadn't started. Um, Absolutely. And so if we can, the reason that we're targeting disposable vapes and we're also looking at the flavours and the colours and the packaging and the location of the shops is because uh, we know that the rates of uh, children and young people using vapes has tripled in the last three years. And we know that some of these flavors and packaging and so on are very cynically marketed at that younger market. And so we want to absolutely crack down on that and to ensure that children and young people grow up knowing that they should not be vaping um, because it is not, you know, it's not a lifestyle choice that is going to help them in years to come. We want, it should only ever be used to stop smoking. Great. So the, obviously the vaping stuff uh, you talked about this week and uh, Parliament is going to respond to that. I think there's some regulation work that we need to do in Parliament and then the smoking and vaping bill itself, um, which is about the age and making sure that nobody who's 14 at that point will ever be able to legally buy cigarettes when do you think that is going to get before parliament i i i'm going to give one of those answers that ministers give i'm afraid which is uh shortly okay um that that in i once described that what does shortly mean in civil service time it's a it's uh more promptly than in due course but not as (laughs) well look it's funny you should say that because we were talking (laughs) before you came on at the top of the show about um how i i used to say this as a minister you know shortly becomes uh no soon becomes shortly and shortly becomes imminently and um would it be fair to so so that could be shortly um (laughs) would it be fair to say that the dental recovery plan which i know you care passionately about is that um is that a soon a shortly or an imminently (laughs) (laughs) 
So uh, just just to reassure people on the uh, on the sorry, this is very Politico and, and Westminster, um, but the um, just on the on the smoking bill, I want to get it out. You know, yeah. I, I believe you me, I feel great urgency, and I am by definition an impatient minister, so I will get it out as soon as I possibly can. And there's a huge you know, huge support across uh, government, but also we know how much mums and dads and carers and others want to get this legislation through um, as quickly as possible to protect their children uh, and so on. So we get the urgency. It will be, as I say, um, it really will be right. shortly. But uh, in terms of dentistry, I, again, um, um, uh, go, I'm, I'm an impatient minister on that. And we are working out what I hope um, will be a really exciting package for people uh, to access NHS dentistry. You know, the one, one of the reasons being, and it shows... Um, the value actually of our parliamentary system and the importance of uh, ministers and their, you know, having their constituency experiences. I am very much bringing my experiences as a constituency MP in rural and coastal Lincolnshire into the thinking on this because we know that there are some parts of the country that have great NHS dentistry provision. You know, in London, it, you know, there's a there's generally a, a, quite a bit of choice but in rural and coastal parts of the country it can be really difficult and so we're trying to yeah. address those needs as well okay couple of quick ones um Jacqueline Gordon uh, on Twitter we know clean air would reduce premature deaths and disease in the country by approximately 40,000 um it, this is her figures it, it, if this was a disease there'll be an outcry well of course it can lead to disease why is it not a health priority to reduce air pollution of all kinds um wh- where does air pollution stand in your uh, impatient priority list um, well, as you'll appreciate, this is a uh, it's a it's a cross government um, piece of work because although uh, sadly the health service will have to deal with or look after people who are suffering from uh, the ill effects of clean air, of course other parts of government, including DEFRA, um, are the hold, hold the levers on this, and so um, we we monitor it very carefully. DEFRA monitors it. And uh, we are uh, we make sure that it's reviewed carefully, but we very much want to um, set uh, commitments or targets, sorry, that are achievable. And I think as we um, as as a society, as we see this move towards, for example, electric vehicles, uh, the very, very exciting and far-reaching work that is going on even with aviation fuel, um, we will begin to see uh, real step changes in the quality of, air, uh, quality of air. But, you know, I absolutely understand why people are concerned about this. And, and as I say, it's a piece of work across government that... Okay. Um, really trying to address this a lot of stuff at the moment about physicians associates uh we had a lot of people contact us about that people Um, concerned about it it seems to be an issue that's sort of going up the political agenda um can you set people's worry people who worry like me um about physician associates and their role within the workforce yeah very much so. so first and foremost um we have really wanted to ensure um that we have uh when we look at the needs of the NHS over the um, over its future, you know, I, I describe what we call the long term workforce plan. To me, that was launched in the seventy fifth uh, year uh, of the NHS, and to me, the long term workforce plan is how we build for the next seventy five years of the NHS. So this is about how we best use people within our workforce, how we look at having different roles within uh, the NHS, because I think we all appreciate it's changed over the last 75 years. And so we, we should uh, 
be flexible and reflect that. And physician associates are just one of the ways that we're trying to both broaden access to um, medical uh, occupations for people who want to do that, but also uh, to help boost patient safety and uh, access to healthcare. So Physician associates, look, I understand, I know this is new and I know that people are rightly looking at it, scrutinizing it and are concerned about it. I get that. What we, it's why I'm, I, you know, I was so clear and firm that we will be regulating these. Of course we will. Uh, and we are very clear also that they will never replace doctors. They are there to help doctors a little bit I don't know if it's an appropriate analogy but a little bit like a teaching assistant helps a teacher physician associates are there to just help uh, ensure that when um, let's say a very busy uh, doctor in a hospital you know they're trying to get through their list let's try and use the physician associate to help that doctor with um, the sorts of tasks they need to um, perform outside the appointment itself so that the, the doctor can spend as much of their time as possible focusing on the patient so there's I, a lot around this and I, I mean I genuinely I'm very much listening yeah. to concerns but I do and I would, and I would say that it's, it's become a lot of heat in this topic recently and actually we've had them in the UK for 20 years we've learned a lot from the states there's great research about them how to educate them how to train them, how to work with them I've worked with them and had fantastic experiences so there's a there's a lot of misinformation out there too so I think I think the professions have a role in sort of spreading the good stuff as well as working uh, with you to get the regulations sorted. But I'm going to move us on. I'm conscious of your time. Well, we've got lots of questions. Can I th throw a couple of quick ones at you? Would that be all right? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I've got one here from the Chief Executive of the National Academy of Social Prescribing, conflict of interest. I'm related to the, the National Academy of Social Prescribing. Uh, so Charlotte Osborne Ford via LinkedIn asked us, will the government accept the recent recommendations from the Health and Social Care Committee on prevention for the need for a national strategy for social prescribing? Thanks for this one, Steve. Thanks to your committee. <laughs> Um, well, look, I think it, I think social prescribing can be really important and, and of real value to people. So um, we very much understand uh, why the committee recommended uh, as it did. Um, we we want to go further, um, and I think um, uh, we are looking very carefully at how we can build on. Uh, what we have already achieved. So I, I think there's something like uh, 2.3 million referrals have been made to social prescribing services. I mean, it's another great example, Helen, actually, of, of ensuring that we're using you as GPs mm -hmm. uh, in those cases where we we you, know, you really need we really need your expertise and if there are other ways in which we can help people it will not always be through a GP and and so we very much um, are excited by these but uh, the NHS I think has recruited nearly three and a half thousand yeah. uh, social prescribing link workers so I think there's much more to be done with this I think it's a really exciting area. It is. I love my link workers in the practice. They just do. They do what I always used to try and do, but they just do it so much better than I ever could. So, yeah, <laughs> loving the link workers. Yeah. Going to move us on. We had a question about sugar in foods. This was an, this one was off, off uh, the social media platform formerly known as Twitter uh, from yeah. Power and Randev. Um, how do you and your colleagues at DHSE propose to reduce sugar and carbs content and ultra processed foods to help manage the diabetes and weight disaster? I quote. And it, 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 I guess this is about strategies, obesity strategies. Well, of course, um, sugar has already been uh, dr dramatically reduced in children's foods. Uh, 
and indeed um we we because to tackle the issue of uh, diabetes and obesity and so on we we have to look at all of the factors at play here and of course uh quality of sport of physical education of participation in physical activity for all children is critical to that so we've um we're very much supporting work on that. We are also um, delivering schemes such as Healthy Start that encourage healthy diets. Uh, and uh, we are also investing in um, mental health services and appreciate this won't apply to everyone, but it is a factor uh, that we um, are very keen on ensuring isn't missed for those uh, people for whom it's um, relevant and appropriate. We want to try and um, uh, ensure that we're supporting people across the board with healthy eating and exercise, because actually, you know, what we try to do now for young people and children rather like with tobacco and vaping you know that will that will be that will hold them in good stead for many many decades to come and we're all living longer healthy you know longer lives we want them to be long and healthy lives um and so that's the big challenge i think for healthcare systems actually around the world is how we um make sure it's that we live longer but we live healthier as well Victoria, that's brilliant. And it's so interesting to hear you mention diabetes there in that question, Helen, because obviously, Victoria, you live with type 1 diabetes, don't you? And uh, you have for many years. So I was diagnosed with type 1 at the age of three. And uh, it, the NHS is genuinely one of the reasons I came into politics. And so it's an enormous privilege to be to be oh, made And I've got on my desk a report from uh, George Howarth and your former boss at the Home Office, Theresa oh. May, who have a funny feeling might be beating your door down to talk about no, type 1 diabetes and disordered eating parliamentary inquiry. Listen, it's great to Thank be with you. us. I think the division bell is going in the House of Commons, so we all need to go and vote just to prove that this is live. Um, Take care. Thank you so much and good Thanks luck so with your role. Bye. Bye. Welcome back. Well, that was a great conversation. We covered a lot there, but I know, Steve, there must have been a dozen more questions we didn't touch on. So huge apologies to anybody who has submitted a question that we didn't get to. Uh, we'll see if we can follow up with uh, the Secretary of State. Yeah, look, I mean, at the end of the day, I, I said to, to you before, the clerks and the select committee say that I'm exhausting. Um, Victoria is exhausting as well. And I love that. I love that yeah. about her. I love the fact that she is so full of energy. And, you know, hey, look, she's got limited time until the election. Um to to do all the things she wants to do so why not why not be ambitious and why not be energetic and impatient that's exactly how it should be but we covered a lot of ground and interesting yeah i think she shares our passion for prevention you know so anyone who brings forward that sort of smoking legislation clearly does yeah well bring it on bring it on um steve we're running short of time but i don't think we can finish up today without mentioning measles now for those of you who are not aware i'm a gp in the midlands and the midlands is the sort of the epicenter it's the measles nexus of the uk at the moment we've got a lot of cases um have you picked have you been hearing much noise about it in parliament oh very much so um so we did a big vaccination report which was the first work stream of our prevention inquiry uh, last summer it came out and we heard evidence from jenny harry's the uk health security agency and others um and you know we did warn in that report that we 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 reported warnings that there was a measles problem coming down the track it is in certain communities and it yep. is certain and therefore and it is certain areas um but it's a problem and we need to do everything we can to get get the message out there particularly for that generation that missed out on mmr to get yourself vaccinated but also you know get the get the kids vaccinated it's the best thing that you can do and it's perfectly safe right doctor 
totally safe totally and you know we're there, there's a big new campaign going out at the moment we're setting up extra clinics in our surgeries we're going to be contacting everybody who from our records hasn't had their vaccination and is eligible to do so starting with the youngsters first and then going on to people up to the age of 25 in the west midlands region although it'll mostly be focused on younger children in other parts of the country the key things are measles is ridiculously infectious Yes, and um, it can take up to three weeks for you to develop symptoms having become infected. So it's got this really long period of time in which you're infecting others, um, and so uh, you know epidemics can spread really quickly. So uh, if you're called for a booster or your kids are called for a booster, please, 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 please take them and encourage everyone you know to be checking and responding yeah. to. You're right. Seventy-five percent of England's cases are in the West Midlands. Yeah. It is quite localized at the moment. And let's keep yeah. it that way. I mean, in your in your career as a GP, mm -hmm. I, I mean, how, how many cases of measles have you actually seen presumably oh, very small very very full i mean probably less than less than half a dozen uh, i remember a couple of cases because we notify them now because they are rare um i remember the first one not knowing what the heck i was seeing and then suddenly having a moment of oh my gosh could this be measles you know because i'd never seen a case and i've been a gp for uh, quite a long time more than two decades um that's all you need to know on that but yeah um, yeah, this is a big shift and it's a disappointing shift for a completely preventable disease. Anyway, I think we need to wrap it up, Steve. I think we do. Um, so we will be back in uh, not usual. Usually we would be back fortnight. We'll be back in three weeks because it's half term. And uh, I'm going to take the kids away for a little bit of a break while Parliament's on recess, while they still want to go on a holiday with me. Um, and so <laughs> we'll be after that, we'll be back with some more. And we've got some very interesting guests lined up. We certainly have. And there's lots of stuff we could have talked about this week about health stories that we're going to bank for another time. Yeah, back for another time. See you soon. Take care. Bye. Bye.